All right, we got there. Good morning. Happy Sabbath, everyone. Uh, I hope your week has been good. Our week has been a bit hectic. Um, but um, yeah, this week we're going to be talking about confession. And um, I'm just going to double check to see if the slides are working. Can I get screen priority? All right. So um, yeah, today we're going to be talking about confession. And the topic for today's sermon is what to do when you get uh, tired of confessing. And so what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be sharing um, some church history with you and the context of confession and how we've come to where we are today. And so um, I'm just going to go through a, a bit of history and then I'll just share some insights into um, what the Bible says about confession. Um, so er, basically early teachers and theologians um, in the sec- first and second century of the church believed that salvation began with baptism. And that meant that all sins committed up to the point of baptism would be forgiven. Um, and the question is, what happens when somebody sins post-baptism? And so for the early Christians, they really kind of had these deep concerns about this because they didn't want to lose out on eternal life. And the, uh, another reason why this was a challenge was because that um, oftentimes civic duties required uh, pagan worship or the worship of the emperor. And so many Christians uh, tended to have concerns about that, um, of reconciling their faith in God and living in a, in, in a world, uh, living in a paganistic society that required them to um, just act in contrast to their own convictions. And so what ended up happening is that a lot of Christians ended up putting off their uh, baptism till the end of their lives, and so they would just get baptized right before they died. Now, the problem of post-baptismal sin still remained for others. I mean, the question is, okay, so I've decided to get baptized early, and I still struggle with sin, so then now what? Now, according to uh, Clement of Alexandria, and I'm wondering if I can get... Thank you. Clement of Alexandria, he wrote in the mid-2nd century about what sins qualified forgiveness and which ones didn't. And here's what he said. Um, he then who from among the Gentiles and from that old life has betaken himself to faith has obtained forgiveness of sins once. But he who has sinned after this on his repentance, though he obtained pardon, ought to fear, for there is no more remaining sacrifice for sins left, only a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. Now, this is the common teaching in the early church, uh, but this soon changed. Uh, church historian Burton Scott Easton comments on events that took place in the third century. So uh, there was a presbyter by the name of Hippo, uh, Hippolytus, and he insisted that uh, Christians be saints in the literal sense of the word, and his church in Rome was frequently purged of those showing unsaintly qualities. Well, he had a fellow presbyter by the name of Callistus, and Callistus, on the other hand, allowed sinners to do post-baptismal penance. And so not only did Callistus retain his members, but he added to his church those who had been excommunicated by uh, Hippolytus. And so Burton Scott Easton says, This decision of Callistus was nothing short of revolutionary, 
and it was destined to change the ideal of church membership for all time, so that in the interest of church growth, the standards for church membership were relaxed. So not only did this change church membership um, and growth, it made the church re-examine salvation, uh, creating this uh, complex system of public pen- uh, penance. So an, an example of public penance would be uh, crawling up the steps of a holy building on one's knees, audibly praying specific prayers, confessing uh, the faults of their lives, or uh, basically confessing their sins. Now, in the early 4th and 5th centuries, many Christians became turned off by the institutionalized church and its alignment with the civic authorities, and some left the cities for a life of solitude and silence of the wilderness of Egypt, Syria, and Palestine. And these desert monks basically hoped to recover the essence of Christian faith. So while these men and women regarded themselves as sinners in need of mercy, uh, outsiders viewed them as holy people, and they were known for their wisdom, counsel, and purity of faith, and um, they lived simple lives free from the desire of wealth and power, and essentially there there was this... um, there were these pilgrimages made from people who heard about these desert monks and they wanted to connect with these holy men and women of the, um, of the Eastern desert. And so, um, as they would go on these pilgrimages and interact with these, um, holy people, uh, they would just kind of realize that these, uh, fathers and mothers of, of, or well, they were called fathers and mothers, but these holy monks, they, they just had this incredible discernment about them. And so they would seek out spiritual advice. They would confide in their struggles and transgressions and joys. And basically they just wanted to gather a better understanding of themselves as they interacted with these desert people. And so this is kind of where the practice of private confession uh, came into existence. And so the desert fathers and mothers, um, they became well-known, and um, pretty soon priests, theologians, and other religious leaders uh, began to take these pilgrimages as well. So by the end of the 4th century, monks from Ireland introduced the desert fathers and mothers practice to their own homeland. Uh, They were so impressed by this spiritual practice that they decided to take it with them. And uh, according to David L. Fleming, he writes, uh, By the 5th century, Christians could repent, confess their sins, and be forgiven on several occasions, and eventually an unlimited number of times. So over the next thousand years, the papal church um, adopted this practice, but they also commercialized private and public confession. And so at the heart of the Protestant Reformation was this um, protest against this misuse of power. And so um, they, the, 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 the reformers really didn't like the misuse of power as papal Rome exchanged uh, absolution of sins for finances. So, people would go to uh, papal Rome, or they would go to their priest, and they wanted to know, how does God want us to say sorry? And the response was, give us your money, and you and your loved ones can find forgiveness. And so people who paid for forgiveness were then given indulgences. So, as the protests 
built up. There were several significant events that took place that led to the Protestant Reformation. Um, as early as the 12th century, there's records of councils forming together of theologians and religious leaders, and pockets of people within the church kind of protested this misuse of um, ecclesiastical authority. In the 14th century, there was a man by the name of John Wycliffe, and he criticized the use of indulgences. Then in the early 15th century, John Huss spoke out against the abuses of the church, and as a result, uh, the people in Prague had this public burning where they would burn the decrees that were um, they were burning the decrees giving the church authority to sell indulgences. So then a few more important events took place that changed the course of history. Um, public revolt could no longer be suppressed, and there was also the invention of the printing press, which allowed the Bible to be mass-produced in the common language. And this meant that people could read the Bible in their own language for the first time, and that meant that the papacy could no longer take advantage of, uh, of people's uh, superstitions. Then there was a monk by the name of Martin Luther, and he enters the scene and he translates the Bible into the German language. And he wrote extensively on the topic of salvation. And in very, in a very brief summary, Luther championed this idea that's found in 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 9, which says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This passage applied would pose a significant threat to the established hierarchy of the church. Um, it meant you didn't need to go to the priests for confession. Uh, you could conve- you could confess to God yourself um, as each individual is considered a priest. Political leaders loved this because they didn't like being uh, spiritually oppressed by Rome, and they provided uh, political and physical um, protection to Luther. And this also hurt the revenue of the papal church because they were receiving significant funds from um, different parts of Europe, and all of a sudden, or over the course of time, there were whole countries that were then uh, no longer generating income through the selling of indulgences. So as a result, um, the administering of confession by the laity or the common church members was developed both theologically and practically by Luther's followers, and this spread. And so um, not only did that happen, but then there were other reformers in different parts of Europe that began to study the writings and teachings of Luther and adopt uh, his theology. So there was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his name was uh, Thomas Cranmer, and he was influenced by Luther's theology, and he ended up secretly marrying the niece of a Lutheran theologian. And this is significant because technically um, the the Archbishop or the 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 priests in England were supposed to be celibate because they were still connected to the papacy. But uh, Cranmer actually adopted the, the teachings of Luther, and he uh, helped, I guess, negotiate the separation between the Church of England and the Church in Rome. And not only that, um, King Henry VIII, who was the king in England, wanted a divorce from his wife, uh, wife Catherine of Aragon, and the Papacy would not give him 
um, the legal ability to divorce his wife. But once the Archbishop of Canterbury um, went through that process of separating the Church of England and uh, the Church in Rome, he then allowed King Henry VIII to get his divorce. And so this kind of solidified that separation, and um, and then we have the existence of the Anglican Church. So... Um, Archbishop um, Archbishop uh, Cranmer writes in the institution of a Christian man of uh, in 1537 that confession is considered expedient but not always necessary, while the fruits of repentance, including fasting, almsgiving, restitution, and works of mercy, are required. So there's this general shift away from confession where. Uh, basically, Cranmer says, confession, it's a means to an end. Uh, but one doesn't always need to confess, but transformation is what's required. And Luther was definitely a proponent of that as well. So in 1545, the Council of Trent was convened by Pope Paul III, and this was a response to the Protestant Reformation. And they gathered all their church leaders and basically had this long meeting over a, a decade long um, discussing how do we respond to this crisis. Um, in the 14th session of the Council of Trent in 1551, the council presented a repudiation of the Protestant criticism of penitence, and they clarified um, the church's traditional stance and basically said penitence is still um, needed as a sacrament for the bapti- uh, for those who've been baptized. Um, penitence is instituted, uh, penitence was instituted by Christ in his post-resurrection appearance. And if you look at John chapter 20, verse 23, um, the text says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so the church fathers commended it with a great and unanimous consent. And so they summarized a confession on three points. And basically confession consists of contrition, which means having a genuine sorrow for sin. Um, it means confession. And that's when a sinner gives a full account of their mortal sins, describing the circumstances surrounding the sin if need be, and in turn the priest functions as both judge and physician. And finally, satisfaction. And satisfaction is defined as works of penitence uh, assigned by the confessor following absolution. And so basically... This is to serve as a bridle to make uh, penitent sinners more cautious or watchful um, for the future. And uh, penitence was also supposed to be a remedy for remaining sins. And also uh, penitence was supposed to act as an opposite virtue to kind of counteract the wrong that they had done. And so um, the church basically prescribed that every member should perform confession a minimum of once a year during Lent, um, at bare minimum. So in summary, the papal church abused confession uh, to benefit itself, and then there was this Protestant response that largely took away the significance of confession. Um, And basically, this took away the practice of public confession. It left private confession up to the individual's discretion. And Protestantism basically focused on the importance of the transformation of life rather than um, the act of going into a booth and and sharing their personal failures. And then the Catholic Church also revised its own stance on confession. 
So this brings us to today. Confession looks a bit differently today. For example, um, in, in Protestantism, at least in different churches, general calls for confession and repentance are made through public preaching. Uh, for example, depending on what church you go to, there are times where the preacher will make a public call and say, uh, for those of you who want to make a change in your life, stand up or come forward or whatever it may be. Um, some other churches organize accountability groups um, in smaller settings, and so a small group might turn into uh, there might be a buddy system in a small group where there's accountability um, and people can help each other along their struggles. Um, the modern church also tries to separate psychology and pastoral counseling, uh, and there's there's a significant difference between mental health and sin. Uh, there can be an overlap, but there certainly is a difference between, say, clinical depression and um, and one's failure or one's sin. So the Protestant church through history has sort of moved away from confession, uh, not just institutionally, but as a personal discipline. Uh, it's, it's a very normal thing to move away from practicing personal confession, say, in the context of prayer. And so um, I think the emphasis on confession has uh, traditionally and still is to focus on our mistakes, but I think the problem with fixating on personal sin is that uh, the human tendency is either to be overwhelmed by this sense of guilt, and that kind of leads to this prolonged anxiety if there isn't a change in behavior. Um, it can also result in um, having this sense of numbness to our wrongdoing, and um, maybe that is exhibited through stubbornness or, um, in any case, both both responses of feeling guilt or feeling numbness result in just practicing less personal confession. And so uh, that's where the title of this sermon comes from. What do we do when we've kind of reached the end? Um, at some point in time, no matter how guilty I feel, uh, my guilt doesn't keep me from doing wrong. Um, and there's this perpetual cycle of prayer. We pour our hearts out to God in contrition, and then we have this hope um, and then we make the same mistakes, and then the cycle kind of continues on. So today, I want to explore the spiritual discipline of confession. What does the Bible actually say about confession? Is confession beneficial? If yes, then how? So I want to share three definitions of confession with you, uh, taken from three separate sources. Uh, the first one is the NAS Topical Index, and the NAS Topical Index basically uh, defines confession as it's used in scripture primarily of an acknowledgement of certain divinely revealed truths about God's character and work. So for example, uh, a confession could be in regards to Christ, Christ's work. So in Hebrews chapter three, verse one, it says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priests of our confession, Christ Jesus. And in contrast to that, in John chapter 9, verse 22, this is a story of a blind man who gets healed by Jesus, and uh, when he gets interrogated, he basically says, look, I don't know if this man is the Christ, all I know is that he healed me. Um, and then, uh, basically, the story goes, his parents and uh, said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And so confession uh, from this definition is basically saying we are 
acknowledging certain truths about God's character and his work. So there's a second definition that's taken from Wren's Expository Dictionary, and it's uh, the Expository Dictionary says, of the hundred or so occurrences of this verb, and that's the verb confess, a few are translated confess. The remainder are translated to praise God or to acknowledge his intrinsic value and to recognize him in an act of thankfulness and worship. What I really like about the, this dictionary is it, it, it ends by saying, or it, it ends this definition of this word um, by saying the two meanings of this verb are in fact related. And, and I need to be specific. This is um, in context to, oh, sorry. This is in context to the Old Testament word yada, which is used uh, as confess or to praise. So if the two meanings of this verb are in fact related, then to confess one's sin, which is the secondary meaning of this verb, is not only to acknowledge God as the only source of forgiveness, but to praise God that he not only desires but will remove the guilt of sin. So if you think back on the first de uh, definition, confession is acknowledging truths about God. And so confession is saying, yes, I made a mistake, but confession is also saying, God, you are willing to forgive. So there's this story in 1 Kings 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. And here, um, this prophet is kind of um, mediating between God's people and himself. And he says, when your people Israel are defeated before any is uh, before any enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to your fathers. So here's the third definition, and it's taken from Erdman's uh, Biblical Dictionary, and this is the New Testament word for confess. And the dictionary defines uh, this word uh, homologio as uh, to say the same thing or to agree to a statement. When we think about forgiveness, I think it's easy to hi highlight our wrong. And whenever we think of confession, it generally relates to us admitting to our faults but conf confession from the biblical context it's it's not so much that we're supposed to fixate on our wrong but that we place our minds on god's right and this is what i mean by that if you look at first corinthians chapter 13 verses 8 to 12 um, this chapter is talking about love in general but uh, most definitely we can apply this uh, idea of love to God. In other words, this is how God acts and interacts with us as a fallen, as a, as a fallen people. At the end, it talks about how, uh, well, Paul says, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And so Paul here talks about like this idea of spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity happens when we are able to see as God sees. So if you look at this text um, from verses 8 to 12, Christianity is not so much about us seeing God, or I should say loving is not so much about uh, learning to love God is not so much about us seeing God. Uh, I think many people think they know God, but 
really there's a, there can be a lot of misunderstandings and Christianity can just become another form of idolatry. But Christianity is about us being able to see through the eyes of God from his perspective. And this is what Paul calls maturity. And Erdman defines confession as the ability to say the same thing, to be in agreement. And so confession then is saying, God, I see the way that you see. It's not about seeing God through our guilt. It's not about understanding ourselves from the people around us. It's not about our preconceived ideas about God, but scripture is supposed to inform us of what God thinks and who God is. And it's seeing through his eyes that the childish nature of religion begins to fall away and we're able to grow and mature. So then the question is, what does God think about our sin? What does God think when we continue to struggle with the same thing over and over and over again? How does God respond to our fallen nature? If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, it says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. And just skipping, it's not easily provoked. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It endures all things. And so I love this passage because it says that God is patient with our sin. He is kind. He's not easily provoked. He does not rejoice in iniquity, but he rejoices in the truth. In other words, he doesn't fixate on our mistakes. Rather, he rejoices when we do that which is right. And so God never gives up on us. If you look at the first or the introduction to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the passage states that God's love is so great that he cares about our relationship with us over our gifts and our abilities. He his love is so great, he cares about a relationship, or he prioritizes a relationship over our orthodoxy, over our faith or our faithfulness, over our sacrifices and our giving. God prioritizes a connection with us above all else. So in light of this passage and in light of the definition that we've explored, confession is not about saying the right thing so that God will forgive you. It's about seeing yourself the way that God sees you so you can accept what is and have courage to move forward. It's about cultivating humility and acknowledging our mistakes, which opens the door to our hearts to God's consistent forgiveness. I love that verse in 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's a story in the book of Luke uh, chapter 5 where Jesus sees his disciples and this crowd of people coming towards him. And so he steps on the boat of the disciples and he says, can you launch out into the middle of the lake? And as they, as they, um, row to the middle of the lake, uh, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, take out your nets and cast it out um, to, to, to catch some fish. And Peter responds to Jesus with this statement of unbelief. And he says, uh, Lord, we've, we've been fishing all night and we didn't catch anything. Um, but nevertheless, because you've said, um, cast the net, we'll do it. And so he casts the net and lo and behold, the net fills up with fishes. And at the end of the story, in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, it says, When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I think this this 
story so accurately depicts what conf- what the experience of confession should look like as we encounter the divine presence of god his goodness his grace his power his 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 excellence there is this sudden sense of uh an awareness of our own deficiencies uh, i remember when jinha and i were first dating uh, she would regularly communicate to me um there are times where i look at you and then you look away and I, I then kind of confessed to her, well, I just, I think that you're so amazing that when I see you and then you look at me that I become suddenly aware of the fact that, uh, oh no, what if, what if she realizes how unattractive I am? And, and there's almost this sense of, uh, unworthiness and at the same time, this desire to draw closer. Um, uh, yeah, to draw closer. And so Peter here sees Jesus senses this and falls to Jesus's feet and at the same time tells him please depart from me and and that's kind of what confession is supposed to look like where we yeah experience God's goodness and his greatness and his power and his willingness to forgive and at the same time we're uh, very much aware of our of our uh, deficiencies so when i when i pray through um, my own faults, my own mistakes. And when I practice confession, um, there are mainly two things that, that are two barriers that I find when it comes to confession. One is overcoming that sense of guilt. And something that really helps me is reciting 1 Corinthians 13. Um, it's very helpful to open up the chapter and to read through those passages. And I just kind of reflect on how God prioritizes love and connection to me over um, the different aspects of religion that I'm deficient in. Um, in First Corinthians 13, um, it, it states that um, truth, faith, and sacrifice, it's it, not that they're invaluable, but that God prioritizes that connection over those things. And, and that to me is incredibly encouraging. Uh, I like to dwell on what it means when it says that God is patient and kind. I like to dwell on what it means when uh, God does not rejoice in iniquity, but that he rejoices in the truth. And so I'll often ask that question, God, how do you see me as I am right now? Um, and, and as I just kind of reflect on that, I find that, um, I experience this sense of hope, a sense of acceptance, a sense of love. And I, I feel that I now understand what it means when the childish things tend to fall away and that which is really important, um, becomes apparent. And I've found, uh, that there's resilience and strength and courage, uh, even in the midst of my failures. So the second thing or the second barrier that I find when I kind of uh, explore confession in my own life is when I try to pray through stubbornness or the numbness that comes from avoiding confession. Now, there are a few moments when I don't like to confess my faults, um, primarily when I get into arguments with Jinha. I feel like I'm usually right and she's usually, she's usually wrong. And so uh, there are moments when there's a gridlock where it's like, okay, well, whose turn is it to say sorry? And sometimes neither of us want to say sorry. So then what do we do at that point in time? And and I often, well, I shouldn't say I often, there are moments where I feel that with God, where it's kind of, there's this numbness and I just, I know that there's something that I need to surrender and give to him. I just don't want to. 
And I, I have found that in these moments, um, sometimes it's very helpful just to then focus on the acceptance of God, even if I haven't surrendered that which is dear to my heart. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this in your um relationships with people, whether it's with friends or family or loved ones. But sometimes there's kind of like this deadlock and one person says, Hey, I'm sorry. Like, I just, I think the world of you. And then the response then is, yeah, I'm sorry too. I actually think the world of you as well. And then there's kind of this back and forth of, Oh, it's my fault. Oh no, it was my fault. Oh no, I'm sorry. Oh no, I'm sorry. And it's kind of interesting how sometimes confession happens not before forgiveness, but genuine confession comes after forgiveness. And um, there are times where I find it's very helpful to then just kind of say to God as, as maybe a statement of faith, God, I know that you care for me and just kind of dwell on that goodness. And then there are moments where there's this almost this release and there's kind of an acknowledgement of, yeah, God, I, I am doing this right now and I do need to give this to you and I'm sorry for what I'm doing. Now, I realize sometimes to go through this process on your own can be quite challenging. And so um, to kind of explore what confession might look like for you as as individuals or as a church or as church members, um, Jinha and I here, uh, Jinha and I are here for pastoral counseling and prayer. You can always contact us and um, just have us pray together and work through together um, what those different struggles look like in your life. Um, I highly encourage you to connect with people in the church that you feel safe with, that you trust, that you know that can bring encouragement to your life, and to go to those individuals and to then say, hey, this is what I'm going through. Uh, just wondering if we can have a chat and pray together. Um, now, there are also times where it's inappropriate to share our struggles with each other, but then to go to a professional, um, uh, a professional mental health care. Um, I'm saying that wrong, but I, I know you know what I'm talking about. Um, but in, in those cases, I highly encourage you to give us a call. Um, Jinha and I have a list of counselors or um, trained medical professionals who would be able to help you in the right direction. And so, um, yeah, I hope that as you practice confession in your life, that you can sense God's presence, that you can see yourself as God sees you. And in turn, may you be able to see the community around you as God sees the community. Would you join me in prayer as we finish? Father God, we come before you today, and as we consider your goodness, as we consider your grace, as we consider your majesty, may we find acceptance and courage and hope. Um, and as a result, may it transform our lives, may it give us freedom as opposed to, um, as opposed to the bondage that, that, um, sin has sin creates in our lives and i just want to pray that you be with uh, the members of the melbourne city Adventist church in a special way um, as we're going through this uh, time of isolation that um, you would minister to people's hearts i also want to pray for those who are not a part of melbourne city Adventist church who may be watching this uh, live stream or who may be watching this video and i just want to ask that you would minister to their hearts as well may you connect them with a community of faith um, that their hearts would be ministered to as well. We pray these things in your name. Amen.